Hello, my dear nerds! The spooky season has finally begun! May a ghost haunt your house and may a demon leave creepy messages on your mirror. Especially on yours, my dear friend Manu. Fitting for the spooky time, I've read a bunch of books about the history of medicine and I will now share some of it with you and hopefully give you nightmares. We are gonna start in the year 1842, a couple years after the first hospital was built. In this hospital, the operating theatre was at the centre of the hospital, separated from the public areas by thick walls and a long corridor, which had the advantage of shielding the screams and also, since that theatre was pretty close to the mortuary, it was easy to move between those places quickly, sometimes right after an operation. At this time, amputation was often the only solution. That or death, since wounds often became infected, for some reason, I wonder why, <laughs> what a mystery. One of the best surgeons was Robert Liston. Liston was often described to have sharp features and a sharp temper by his colleagues. Most of his students and staff were afraid of him. He really made sure of that. He was very intolerant to mistakes. We all know people like that. Right before an operation began, porters would shut the door and send guards to prevent the patients to make a run for it. It was mostly men who tried to escape. Anyway, back then, without anesthesia, the patient was held down to make sure they couldn't move or even bite the doctors. Liston was very fast and luckily the mortality rate of his surgeries were quite good. One of his six patients died whereas other surgeons sent their patients a lot more often, straight to the mortuary. Back then, it was even usual for surgeons to reuse, reuse bloody bandages and dressings. Some even took pride in their bloody surgical clothes. I really wonder why so many wounds got infected. Anyway, Liston actually made sure to wash his hands and to change bandages regularly on his patients. So he did something right. But he did once finish a surgery with a 300% mortality rate. During that operation, he accidentally amputated an assistant's finger. Both the patient and the assistant died of an infection and an observer died of shock happens to the best of us. A few years earlier, in 1536, body snatching was also a big thing. Sometimes they were the bodies of criminals. One evening, the road already deserted, the medical student Andreas Vesalius was on his way home. There he sees a criminal just dangling from a gibbet. Getting hold of a body was difficult and, you know, a dog might jump up and ruin that quite alright body, or another medical student could come along. Vesalius didn't hesitate for long and decided to take his new friend home. However, due to the body being around 3 meters up, it would be nearly impossible to get it down. Well, 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 Vesalius found a way. Instead of taking the whole body, he would do it bit by bit. Vesalius jumps up, grabs one of the legs and rips it off. He does so with the rest of the body until a pile of bones is next to him. 
he bundles them up in a cloak and continues to go home. Now, he only needs to get the bones clean without breaking them and to put them back together. And then after that, he would have a skeleton where you could study anatomy on. How practical! And that was only the start. Vesalius dissected many more bodies and after a while he was able to map out every single organ and muscle in the human body and wrote some of the most influential books on human anatomy. So while illegal body snatching wasn't the worst thing one could have done. Maybe one shouldn't do it nowadays, but back then it was quite helpful actually. Let us now talk about why it is important to wash hands, especially in hospitals. Child bed fever was not a particularly nice disease. The mother would start to experience soreness, a rising temperature and abscesses would spread across the body within days of giving birth. Many women and children died. 1846. In a hospital in Vienna, there were two clinics. One of them was run by mostly medical students and the general male staff. The other one was run by only midwives. Now, my dear listeners, guess where most of the women died? Exactly, in the first one, run by men. Of course, the public noticed, especially the women, which caused the about-to-be-mothers to wish to be admitted into the second one. Some would even run away screaming once they realized they were put in the first one and had to be dragged back. Of course, it was the women's fault. At some point, the way the women were admitted into the hospital got changed so that they no longer knew in what clinic they were in. Didn't change the death rate, but who cares? Certainly not the male surgeons. The main reason the first clinic was so deadly was because the doctors would sometimes work on a dead person before working on an alive person about to give birth. Without washing their hands. Might as well have spoon-fed those cadaver germs to their patients. Some even claimed that the smell of cadavers was attractive to women. Of course it was a claim made by men, I don't think I have to say that. Things like that make me wonder if the world wouldn't be a better place if women would have had rights sooner. Anyway, the midwives were forbidden by law to practice on cadavers and therefore didn't spread dead people germs. And that's exactly why less women died in the second clinic. At some point, they figured out to wash and disinfect their hands before interacting with a living human. Good job, very proud that they've reached such a conclusion that early and avoided so many deaths. Not everyone believed that, obviously, and many old men didn't want to change their ways. What a surprise! Now onto the story of transplants. In March 2000, Clint Hallam looked quite normal from far away, but the closer you got, the more noticeable was the difference in his arms. 
one longer than the other. His hand would be remembered in nightmares, for it was a dead man's hand. His upper arm was perfectly normal. Then there was the hand, pale and practically hairless, the opposite of his arm. It just didn't quite fit. The skin was inflamed, the hand was similarly swollen, the skin was peeling, there were ulcers and the flesh was shiny. The fingers were even more obviously decaying. The fingertips were crusty and sore, the yellow nails gradually separating from the flaking skin underneath. After a while, the person who received the first transplant started to find his own hand repulsive. Understandably. He received his transplant in France 1998 because of the law on organ donation. Almost everyone who died became a potential donor unless they opted out first. This particular hand was matched for body and tissue type, but as one could clearly see, not in appearance. He has been waiting for 14 years for this operation only to ask doctors in 2001 to remove it. He was greatly relieved. The surgeons who attached the hand in the first place weren't particularly happy about it, but they couldn't do anything. I mean, they could have just, in the first place, looked for a hand that matched an appearance, but anyway. Let's move on to a deadly dentist, James Spence in 1765. James Spence was very discreet and assured his patients that no one would ever know about the visit. After all, who would want to admit that the teeth weren't perfect? For his transplants, he preferred to his living donors, since many were repulsed by the thought of eating with a dead person's tooth. His donating process would work like this. Once he needed teeth from a young woman, and therefore had one of his servants locate suitable donors in the neighborhood, who would be willing to go through with this procedure. They would be rewarded and by mid-morning many young women were queuing up in the early behind Spence's office. After taking a couple teeth, the patient would arrive. The teeth of his patients often weren't exactly nice to look at. The mouth of a stand of decay with black written stumps and a raw inflamed gum. Not a surprise that they would want a tooth transplant. But at what cost? Well, the price was syphilis. It is said that Spent infected at least seven of his patients with syphilis. Great! Get one tooth and you get syphilis for free! Anyway, those kind of tooth transplants only stopped once ceramic false teeth were used. Finally, no more syphilis from teeth! Amazing! We all know those kind of people who care more about their reputation than the well-being of others. Just like Walter Jackson Freeman II with his horrifying medical procedure, the lobotomy. While a physician, he was not a surgeon or even near a surgeon. He shouldn't operate on any part of the body, let alone the brain. That did not stop him, however, and he, with his partner, James Watts, performed the first version of the surgery in the US on a 63-year-old woman. 
this woman suffered from severe depression after she lost many of her loved ones. According to Freeman, she was simply not fun to be around. And after the operation, she was free from anxiety, but she was also only able to do simple things like flipping through a magazine or drawing some small things. But she wasn't able to do things like holding a conversation. Another famous example of this lobotomy was Rosemary Kennedy. She has always been a bit slower. While her mother was in labor, the doctor was late and therefore the nurse told Rosemary's mother to cross her legs and hold on. She even pushed the baby back once it appeared to come out. Of course, that caused some kind of brain damage. But Rosemary, while her IQ was lower, wasn't unhappy. She was hardworking and in general seemed pretty joyful. Later, she became prone to temper tantrums after her other siblings started to, what it seemed to her, have more exciting lives. Her father then decided that lobotomy was the cure for that behavior instead of helping her and being there for her. Her father knew the consequences. But did he care? No. While the lobotomy was performed, she was asked to recite the lyrics to some simple songs. They kept cutting until she became incoherent. Afterwards, she was unable to walk or talk. She was incontinent. Only after years was she able to utter a few words. It was made sure that no one outside the family found out what happened. Even after results like this, Freeman kept insisting that the lobotomy was actually not a big deal and that it had helped a lot of people. Instead, it ruined many people's minds and lives. The patients completely lost their personality and were never the same again. Freeman's license was finally revoked in 1967 after a patient in his care died as he performed a third lobotomy on her. And now, a few light-hearted, more fun things that happened to people in the past. It probably wasn't fun for them, but anyway. Starting with a young man who had a fork up his butt, which made this wonderful headline. An account of a fork put up the anus that was afterwards drawn out through the buttocks, communicated in a letter to the publisher, and so on. A headline that would definitely grab the attention of readers. This young man was an apprentice to a ship carpenter and he's had violent pains in the lower part of his abdomen for the last six or seven months. Then a part of his butt started to swell. Well, after a while, the prongs of a fork started to appear through the orifice of the sore. The fork was then removed and he survived, but why would their fork be in this place? He reluctantly told the story of how the heck that happened. He was constipated. Being a young independent man as he was, he looked for a way to help himself. But how? Right, a fork? Yes, 
That must be the right solution and shaft it up his butt as you do when you're constipated. Unfortunately, he couldn't get it out again. Did it help against his constipation? Maybe. We don't know. But... But... <laughs> it sure was a creative solution. The Pigeon's Rump Cure Eclampsia is a serious condition that affects women before, during and after giving birth. While infants can also suffer from those seizures, the causes are quite different ones. Well, there was a way a German physician found that would treat the affected children. Quote, One remedy I must mention here, whose unequivocal effects I have myself witnessed, however inexplicable the phenomenon, if one holds the rump of a dove against the child's anus during paroxysm, the animal quickly dies and the attack ceases just as rapidly. Reading things like this really make me wonder, how did the thought of holding a pigeon's butt to a child's one occur? What was the thought process? And why? And how? Did he just hold up his physician license and said, don't worry, I'm a professional, now get me a pigeon and give me the child. And just do that? I, I wish I could talk to that person. Now, alcohol. You can drink it. However, doctors also used it a lot until pretty recently. It was still used as a stimulant in the 20th century after major surgery. However, the mouth wasn't the only orifice they put that into. A case published in 1858 in Britain with the following. Poured wine in a matter as a substitute for transfusion of blood in cases of postpartum hemorrhage. And yeah, I'm not gonna elaborate. And that, my dear listeners, is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I wish you all a wonderfully spooky time. Goodbye and may the demon under your bed say hi. Until next time, bye.